Hello and welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And we're so excited that you have joined us this week. Thank you so much for being here. Our guest this week is Troy Bateze. He is an environmental historian who thinks about animals and the climate and in general about the mess we have gotten ourselves into and how we can maybe get out from it uh, with a vegan and Marxist perspective. That's what he's bringing to the table. This is like a this sounds like a big interview. I'm excited, but I'm also a little intimidated. Oh, this is one of our Smarty Pants interviews. He's a scholar at Harvard, and I learned a lot listening to him. And he has big ideas, and I really, really enjoyed it. Well, I'm excited because I think he has some fascinating insight that might just blow your mind. And he's also joining us this week for the bonus segment. Yes, I'll be continuing my conversation with Troy there. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you are not a member of the Flock and you could afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate or $100 a year. If you're a Flock member, also join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. They are a lot of fun. We actually, we had so many people last week. We had Joanne MacArthur join us uh, for an intimate conversation. Everyone was so excited about it. She's incredible. And uh, sometimes we just talk about activism and how to shift our own thinking around and our own behavior and also how to take care of ourselves and each other, especially during these weird, tough times. So if you're a member of The Flock, check out The Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us if you have any questions at info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get to the interview, we're pretty sure there's some very big news. Yeah, no, it's a story out of China. You may have heard about it. Happened last week, I think. And, you know, China has, for a long time has been really a huge sticking point for companies that had maybe formerly gone uh, cruelty free and then went back on it because they just didn't want to lose the Chinese market. And these are cosmetic companies because China required uh, animal testing for for cosmetics, um, certain types of cosmetics sold there. And now they seem to have really made a big change. And I know a lot of people have been working on this for a long time. I'm not sure of the exact parameters, but according to Plant-Based News, uh, the announcement was revealed in a statement from the National Medical Products Administration. And I guess that's in, in the UK. China currently requires animal testing for beauty products sold within its borders. And so as China becomes a bigger and bigger market, there's more of an incentive for any large company to start doing animal testing, even if they'd stopped it. And now there's just certain types of cosmetics, but it sounds like it's a lot of them. They're called uh, general imported cosmetics. They're not going to be requiring testing on them for for ones that are imported into China, not mm-hmm. ones for that are made there. This could be huge. Mm-hmm. It could be huge. It's supposed to go into effect really soon, too, on May 1st. So according to the Leaping Bunny Program, and you're probably familiar with that because, you know, it, it tracks these... Uh, cruelty-free practices, and this is considered major progress, though lots of steps remain for companies wishing to sell in China. So I'm not sure exactly how quickly this will all happen. You know, I'm going back on it and back on it because I don't want to overstate it. But this is huge. I mean, this is a huge number of animals. It's also like just an attitude shift. Like there's so many countries now that the EU prohibits um, testing on, on, on animals and there have been all of these conflicts trying to work this out so that companies could do business in the EU and in China. And now they can all just kind of be on the same page, which is to stop torturing animals for mascara. And, you know, one of the hats I wear is as the uh, vice president of editorial for Kinder Beauty, uh, which is a vegan and cruelty free and clean beauty subscription box. And, you know, I was thinking about this, especially in the scope of our Flock Friday call the other day when we were talking to Joanne MacArthur. And we were talking about like, what is the hope? Like, what is the next step when it comes to veganizing the world, right? Like ending animal exploitation. And and most people thought it was in cell-grown meat, or I know there are other terms for that. So cultured meat or new meat or slaughter-free meat, whatever you want to call it, you know what I'm talking about. Totally agree with that. I think that that it is really important that we make it as affordable and convenient as possible to make vegan choices And that's when people will make vegan choices. But anyway, back to beauty, within the scope of Kinder Beauty, you know, we're offering people every month a vegan, cruelty-free beauty subscription box 
that is worth a lot more money than you're getting it for because you know you're getting you're getting a box with multiple products in it each month and it's kind of blowing my mind how much easier it is to get through to the general public with this message about cruelty-free beauty as opposed to cruelty-free food like you don't generally get defensiveness people are really excited and open about it they want to try it they want to see what ethical alternatives there are to like some of the brands that they were used to having. A lot of people didn't realize that the makeup and beauty cosmetics that they have been using prior or even tested on animals or had animal ingredients. So like it's kind of like and I mean, I'm making a big general statement, but it's kind of like once you tell people about it and you offer an alternative to cruelly tested cosmetics and and cosmetics that have animal ingredients, they're like, oh my God, of course I'll only use that from now on. I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating, but not by much, you know? And I think as like, as vegans and animal rights activists, we want that reaction when we tell people about what's happening behind closed doors to make their food. We want them to be like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going vegan right now. But that's not what happens. And I do think that the trajectory is clear. And the fact that it's it's working within cosmetics means that there's probably a a clear path for how we can replicate that when it comes to ending factory farming. People have a lot of theories about why people have such a torturous time giving up meat, but certainly just the fact that it's not exactly the same is, you know, one of the most popular theories that people want it to be exactly the same. And really cruelty-free cosmetics are exactly the same as cruelly tested cosmetics. So uh, there's absolutely no block on getting the same product, if that's what the value is that's keeping people from going vegan. And I I think we're getting closer and closer to exactly the same. So that does give out some hope. I mean, there are other theories as to why people don't go vegan. We can't go through all of them. Some of them are that people in love with death, you know, (laughs) has a certain appeal for me. I'm not really high on people this week. All right. I'm admitting it. But this is this is a very exciting fact, very, very exciting fact, which does support the more hopeful side of this story. There was this uh, survey done. 41% of global respondents they surveyed all over the world said that if it was price and taste competitive, they would choose plant-based meat over animal-based meat. Mm. Yeah. That's crazy. And these numbers were over 50% in China, India, and Brazil. You know, we've always been huge meat eaters, but Theirs is is expanding. And if we could find a way to cut that off before it gets even bigger, this is exciting. This is from Globescan's 2020 Healthy and Sustainable Living Report. So it is a moment of hope. There's a few things that indicate there is hope that people are potentially open to changing and that if you just give them a product that's exactly the same, why it has to be exactly the same, I don't know, as long as it's good. But we all know how you, we've all sat at the table and offered some delicious vegan product, you know, a vegan cheese or whatever, and waited excitedly for everybody to say, oh, yeah, that's delicious. And there's somebody at the table who says, yeah, it's not good, but it's same. not exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, that person annoys me so much every time. There's a lot of them. There's so many. But uh, yeah, that's what like from where I stand, one of the greatest innovations is not just from where I stand, but from where everyone stands, one of the greatest innovations on this topic lately is just how mainstream the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger has become to the point where I don't even understand why we're all like, oh, that's great. But what's really going to change everything is this lab grown meat, you know, because I'm like, well, I mean, we've kind of already we've already mimicked the mouthfeel and the the taste and the texture and and the layers of complex flavors that I, I don't totally understand. But I also get that at the end of the day, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger feels to some people like a veggie burger, whereas lab-grown meat, I'm sorry, I keep calling it that, but it's what it is. Lab-grown meat or cell-based meat is pretty much replicating what factory farming is doing just without the slaughter. So we're getting closer to that exact right mimic and people want it to be exactly the same. I don't know whether it is exactly the same. You know, obviously I've never tasted it. It's not on the market and I haven't been in Singapore recently, which is the only place it's on the market. But I wonder if it does taste exactly the same. I can't I, imagine. Who cares? But obviously everybody does. But I just, I don't think I'll, 
I don't know. Like, why Why is it beyond meat to me? It tastes exactly the same, but whatever. I know. It's not about meat. Neither of us has tasted it in that long, so. Yeah. I, there's also, you know, these new, like this steak out of Israel. I think it's, is it Aleph Foods? Mm-hmm. That just seems crazy to me. I wonder if they really do replicate the mouthfeel and the texture of steak, which seems pretty disgusting to me. But, but you know, I'm thrilled if they do. It's just crazy. Well, you know, it, this all of this is sort of reminding me of of avoiding burnout because I was thinking about uh, how, you know, I used to write about avoiding burnout a lot and I would talk to people who had burnt out at either currently or at some point. And a big piece of advice that I read that like psychologists left and right were offering to people who were burning out is to switch up the campaign you're working on or switch up the strategy you're working on to something else. So if you were like really heavily involved in like a, anti-dairy uh, initiative, for example, like switch it up and work on anti-fur or switch it to something more positive and work on like vegan outreach so that it's from the positive, not the negative, not like boycott this, but embrace this. And it's making me think of the fact that like, if you are listening to this and you're an activist and you're tired and you just feel like the small victories are few and far between, I would say for a little while work on uh, fighting animal testing for cosmetics or or advocating for vegan cruelty-free cosmetics in some capacity because it is a very feel-good winning campaign. And, and you as an activist really deserve to feel like you're successful and, and, and supported and like your work matters, which it does, even if you don't necessarily see all of the little victories. But nothing to me is winning right now more than cruelty-free cosmetics. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a great idea that... Uh, it's always a great idea to work on something that you can feel successful at. And I wouldn't say that I feel like I'm burning out. I've never really felt that way about doing animal work. But I am, I mentioned this before, I am in a bad frame of mind about humans. I don't like that. It, it really struck me the other day when we were talking to Joanne MacArthur, you mentioned on the Flock Friday, and she mentioned that she really is, she's a people person. She likes people. And what that woman has seen would destroy anybody. I mean, she has seen the cruelest of the cruel and she still remains positive with the people. And I have to say, I'm not. I, I'm I'm really harsh on people. I wish I could rise above that. Maybe I need to shake things up a bit too. Maybe you do. Well, we can talk about that further, but I'm always given a lot of hope and inspiration from the from the guests that we have who are working on this. And I know I know you do too. I'm not saying you don't, but I get it. I think it's okay. I mean, I think it's okay for someone to be down in the dumps and for you to just be there for a while. Like, I'm not going to try and pull you out of it. I'm just going to say it makes total sense that you're down there right now. Well, I love our guests because they're not the problem. They're the solution. But all the people out there who are the problem, I mean, just this. Like, I, I looked out my window this morning and, you know, in the country and I happened to see like a herd of deer kind of across the street, which oh, I wasn't yeah. thrilled with because they were right across the street. So they were too close to the street. But all I could think of was like, oh, my God, don't let anybody shoot you. Oh, my God, get away from people. Like like people, the cruelty of people is just overwhelming me. The more we put convenient and, and affordable options in front of people's faces, the more that that will become a non-issue, regardless of whether the hunters in the instance that you just said are going to have a change of heart will become more and more irrelevant because there will become ethical alt- alternatives and people just will be vegan regardless of whether they choose it, that's just the future. So anyway, I'm here for you. Depressing note. No, I'm not. I don't see it as a depressing note. I see it as like actually a really cool thing. Like we don't always have to appeal to people's heartstrings. We can appeal to their sense of convenience too. Well, that's a much, they're they're much more interested in their convenience than their hearts. But then for every like 100 people like that, like one of them will have a change of heart. I'm going to stop talking because all I can say are negative things. And all I could say is positive. I feel like we're going to, like we're in a ping pong match. We're like a cliche here. Okay. Well, now to the interview. How about that? Sounds good? Yes. Okay. Troy Viteze is an environmental historian and a William Lyon Mackenzie King postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University. Oh my God. He's smart, in other words. His book, Half-Earth Socialism, is co-authored with Drew Pendergrass and will be published by Verso in the spring of 2022. And Troy will be joining Marianne right after this. This week's dedication is coming all the way from Down Under, where Elizabeth and her partner are celebrating their 22nd anniversary. Wow. 
Thank you so much for choosing to support our hen house to mark the occasion for the fourth year in a row. We are ever so grateful. Welcome to our hen house, Troy. Hi, great. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. As you we were just you were just saying before we started recording that there there's not a huge community of vegan Marxists. So I'm really glad to have you on the line to to talk through some of these some of these thoughts because you have been thinking a lot about the place of veganism in in the world's future. And let's start out with this because you know I'm not particularly familiar with political theory or Marxism specifically. And you have said that vegans need a theory of capitalism, which sure seems right, because as we know, billions of animals are caught in the maw of of industrial capitalism. So, but what do you what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, I'll say like there are very few vegan Marxists. I mean, I ran a conference or a workshop a couple of years ago, and I think I found most of them. Maybe we'd all fit in a bus, basically. So there aren't very many of us. But I think it is important both for Marxists and for vegans to really learn from one another and really to think about what it means to be to yeah to to really understand what the capitalist crisis is and how that relates to the natural world. So I I think vegans need a theory of capitalism because they have to understand why this era is so bad for animals and why do we have mass extinction events? Like why do we have billions and billions of animals in captivity being slaughtered? And I think we need to think about that historically and think to think about where is capitalism in the place of human history to be able to understand its dynamics and not be ahistorical. Because I think there's a tendency to think people either have only certain interests or they're just selfish or there's like naturally cruel. And these are all ahistorical arguments. And uh, I just don't think it's very convincing. And I don't think we're actually going to be able to solve the problem. And the other thing would be, I think there's a tendency amongst environmentalists and animal rights activists to believe that capitalism, if done properly, could be part of the solution which I would be very uh, skeptical of. So there's this idea, like maybe if only we had enough, you know, alternative meats or something, that that will cut into the, the market share and that will solve the problem. Or if we just had enough private-public partnerships, then we will have enough conservation areas, you know, this kind of thing. And I think that's also not understanding the problem because it's not understanding why, like what capitalism is and why it has to grow and what its relationship is with the natural world. Well, I know this is a big question, but can you just try to explain what capitalism is and why it has to grow and why that is such a disaster for animals in in your thought processes? Sure. I mean, this is uh, kind of Marx 101, like what is capital, right? So I think when people say capital, it can mean many different things. I think you have like a standard uh, economist, you know, interpretation and they would say, oh, it's like, uh, you know, a fixed... Uh, some fixed machinery, or maybe it's money, or maybe it's you know financial strength of some kind, or someone like Piketty. You know, he had his own book called Capital and his own interpretation of what that was. But a Marxist would tell you that capital isn't a thing, or it isn't money necessarily, but it's a relationship. So you have to again imagine what is the span of human history, and generally you have uh, an elite that controls the labor of uh, a subaltern class, like a, as like a working class or a slave class or, or you know, something you think about like the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages, you know, the serfs and lords and all that. And then what's unusual about, about capitalism is that there isn't a direct control of elites for, vis-a-vis the working class. Instead, it's mediated through the market. So what that means is, again, try to say it as simply as possible, is that there's basically two dynamics going on. So first of all, you have a working class that is separated from their means of reproduction. That means like they cannot reproduce themselves in terms of they cannot you know, grow food or they don't have access to tools and they are dependent on the market in a way that before... They, were, they, they didn't need the market. They actually had access to those things and they could support themselves. So that's one thing. So they, they have to work for their living. And the other dynamic is within the capitalist class, again, no one is actually in charge. They're all competing against one another and they have to make a certain rate of profit, right? And if they don't make that, then they'll be gobbled up by another capitalist, right? Or they will, you know, they will be reduced to proletarians or workers themselves. So you have this decentralized economic structure 
in capitalism. So when people say, so that's what's unique about capitalism and world history, and that's what and what matters with that is that there's actually no one really in control of this process. And this matters for the environmental crisis because we can all be aware that we are facing a crisis, right? But we can't seem to do anything because the actual force that organizes society is capital, which is an unconscious thing. I mean, this sounds a bit abstract, but but I think it's actually really important to understanding why we are in this crisis in the first place. And I was to say one more thing, and that is, you know, what is the relationship between capitalism and, and animals and nature? And one has to remember that capitalism emerged from the English countryside in like the 15th and 16th centuries. And so capitalism has always had this relationship to nature, where it's basically redirecting natural flows towards uh, the ends of profit. In the first, in the first case, that was uh, wool production and the enclosures with sheep in the English countryside, and then eventually you get everything else. But this need to constantly expand and change nature is the heart of the problem. Yeah, actually, I think that was a really, really useful beginning. And I don't think it was too abstract at all. And if it was, it was my fault for asking it. But we have to start out knowing about this kind of, this view of the way the world is working at the moment in order to understand how you fit animals into it. And is that what you, what is referred to as the humanization of nature? And that is destroying us, this idea that, that everything natural has to be turned into human terms? So the humanization of nature, again, is like a fairly abstract uh, concept. It comes from Hegel, the philosopher, and, and then Marx uses it and other thinkers use it. And I think it's a useful concept because, first of all, it's a way to really think of the whole span of human history where humans suddenly really start intervening in nature and start and they start seeing themselves in nature as in they you know once you start farming or once you you know make a canal or something you see human consciousness in nature so the the problem for these philosophers was that humans were alienated from nature as we we didn't know what nature was you know alien was it was this alien powerful force that we had to survive against and to overcome that break the reasoning was well we have to humanize nature and therefore you know, guide it and that will reconcile the two and so the end of history is like a fully humanized nature as in like everything in nature is is domesticated basically everything is a farm or a garden right? actually that does right. sound like the end of history but not in a good way no it's but the thing is Again, like I'm a Marxist, but I'm also a, a, you know, a critical against Marxism as well, right? So I would say the problem with this idea is it's ignoring that when you act in a sphere that you do not know, I mean, again, we do not fully understand nature, and not even close to fully understanding nature, it will have all these weird effects. And I think the best way to think about that is the rise of zoonotic disease, right? So, that, you know, you can think about human history really begins, because humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, but we only really have historical consciousness back, more or less, I mean, there's some exceptions, back to the rise of agriculture about 10,000 years ago. But within that moment, you, uh, as soon as we start domesticating animals, then we start getting disease, right? I mean, humans didn't really have that many diseases before that. And uh, what's also interesting is that in the, these new world societies, as in you know, the indigenous nations, like the Aztecs or the, the Plains natives and so forth, because they didn't have domesticated animals, although they had quite advanced societies, they didn't have disease. So when the Europeans came, it was only a one-way transfer of disease. But what's funny about this is the, you know, Hegel, when he came up with this humanization of nature theory, he didn't think about this problem of this, what happens when we act in something that we don't understand, which, you know, again, is one manifestation is disease. Because in his lifetime, cholera emerged, right? And that happened because the East India Company was affecting uh, the forests in, in Eastern India. And that changed the ecosystem where the cholera bacterium was living. And then it adapted to human hosts. And then you have an epidemic and that goes to Prussia and that kills Hegel. So, I mean, as in, you always have to be aware of when we act, we are causing this, this problem. Therefore, we should be trying to limit how much we humanize nature. So I'm not a deep ecologist. I'm not saying we have to go back to becoming hunter-gatherers or anything like that. But we should... Uh, Instead of the end of history being the complete humanization of nature, it should really, we should stop far 
for that because we have to be aware of our limits of our own awareness, if that makes any sense. That makes total sense. I am so far you've been making total sense to me. And I was a little nervous about this interview, but so far I'm good. I'm good. But I want <laughs> and I want to talk about pandemics more because, you know, obviously they're kind of on people's minds and it's an important topic. But first I want to go back because, you know, of course, we're about animals here. And a lot of what you write about are the implications for humans on what we do to animals. But, but I've also seen some comments in your writing that indicates to me that that maybe it goes a little further than that. It, uh, one, one quote I pulled out was, a socialist society can only flourish when it learns sympathy for other creatures, including the humble pig. And I'm just wondering... And the answer can be yes or no, it's fine. But do animals themselves play a role in your political perspective? Or are you just talking mostly about how to save the planet and the humans, which would, of course, be very helpful for animals and is something we would really want to happen. But are your concerns regarding what we do to animals rooted just in concerns for the environment and human health? Or, or is it about the animals themselves as well? Just kind of wondering where you come from on this. Sure, sure. I mean, and there are people who would make these instrumental arguments as in we should only care because it benefits us. And I, and to be honest, I'm certainly horrified by such arguments. I mean, as in it should be easy to see the personhood and the suffering of other, other creatures. And I, and I think especially if you're a socialist and what you're motivated by is, you know, this outrage of injustice, you know, and against injustice, then that should extend to other creatures as well. Right. I mean, to, to become an oppressor yourself, I mean, that just should not be part of the program. So, you know, definitely, you know, I've always, I've been this for a long time. I've been, I cared a lot about, about other creatures and, and that's definitely motivates uh, my work. And I think it's just nice to imagine what would this end of history look like if everyone, I suppose, uh, was given an opportunity to really reflect on that and to build a society where that was uh, at the heart of um, our relationship with nature. And that should really be, be part of it. So I, 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 if that makes any sense. Uh, if, uh, it not only makes sense. It's the dream. Like It's the dream. If people would just look at animals. I, you know, you told some story. This is a little unfair because I just pulled this out of one of your writings. And maybe it, uh, you would need to bring it to mind. But, but I'll just try it. There was a story of piglets being born of a dead sow in a factory farm. And how the workers responded and how you found so much hope within it. Do you recall that story? And can you tell it? Sure. So I wrote a review of two books. One was uh, about a pig factory, like a factory farm in eastern Germany. Um, and the idea was that socialists wanted to have cheap meat as well. So they created like a knockoff version of uh, a capitalist factory farm. And it was a total disaster. But also shows that it's not inherent for the left to care about animals, right? And we can talk more about that relationship between uh, the left and animals. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's one of my favorite conversations to make me crazy. Yeah. So I definitely want to get into this, but let's get back to the pigs. Sure, sure. And then the <laughs> other book was by Alex Blanchette and it's called Porkopolis. And it's an extremely good book and I, I highly recommend it. And he spent a couple of years uh, doing ethnographic research, hanging out in a uh, a town with a large factory farm. And one of the events that happened, one of the most striking events was there was a sow and I think she had a prolapse. So she couldn't, uh, they could, she couldn't birth the piglets. So what they did was they, they killed the sow, the workers, and then they had about a minute to get the piglets out to do a cesarean before they died. So uh, they're all, they all get together and they, you know, each grab a leg and, you know, they, someone has these gigantic, you know, knives and, and, and all that to cut their way to, into the womb and then to get in there and they pull out these pigs and these pigs are already half dead, right? They're not breathing. So they actually do, you know, CPR on these pigs, uh, on these piglets and they bring them back to life. And uh, I was really touched by that story because I suppose it's easy to think that something as horrible as a factory farm will just merely bring out the worst in people, as in it will create opportunities to be cruel or to see that life is cheap and, and all that. But instead, these workers, you know, they, they are struggling to really, I suppose, 
I create life, where right? it's almost like a, an act of resistance or to save their own humanity that they would try so hard to help another creature. So I, I suppose it's just, you know, you want to kind of, you want to see that. And but also one could add that these horrible factory farms depend on human kindness to animals, as in the animals are so weak and so debilitated and are bred to be disabled that they need to have people to, to care for them. So it's just like this horrible dynamic of, of cruelty and kindness at work and it actually creates a moment like this. And, I, and one hopes that that could actually help us think about a new society. Uh, yeah. Be, yeah. The, it, like that spark is there anyway, even though the world has done everything to put it out, the spark maybe can turn into a flame of, of caring about caring about these animals, which who they are obligated to mistreat. Uh, and pe- people are so complicated <laughs> and can can hold so many different thoughts and feelings at the same time. It is a, it's a really fascinating story and um, moving in its own way. Now, in in this, I'm I'm guessing you're from Canada. I'm just guessing that from the from your speech. Am I right? I, I do have a Canadian accent. Yes. Yeah. I'm only mentioning that because, as you may know, in the United States of America, and I imagine in Canada too, though not as strong, Marxism carries a lot of baggage, you know, <laughs> to say the very least. So I kind of wonder why you are going back to a theory that is, I mean, when you, the word socialism carries unbelievable baggage in the United States, as we've seen, why must animal advocates tie themselves to, to Marxism in order is there a, another way to approach this, or is is this the only way forward? I think Marxism provides the best theoretical tools to understand what capitalism is, and I think other traditions don't have a theory of capitalism. As far as I can tell, you know, various shades of liberalism or utilitarianism, which is like the dominant philosophy for animal rights, does not have a theory of capitalism, as in it doesn't, humans are just, have always been in markets and have always exchanged things. And there's no real difference between now and, and again, the Roman Empire or something like that. So I think it's, it's useful to understand the dynamics, but also to understand, I suppose, why it's so hard to fix these problems. And I'll say a little bit about my own intellectual trajectory. So, and I was getting into environmental history and as a master's student, and I suppose I just wanted to understand like, why are we in this mess, basically? Why are things so bad? And I was reading lots of stuff by the degrowth movement, and they were generally saying, you know, like people have like an obsession with growth, or it's like a it's a cultural growth, or this, this belief in growth. And I think that misunderstands the problem because it's not like you know everyone is like cheerleading growth, or and or we can just like simply shut it off, right? Instead, people are really forced to act in ways to compete with others that creates this this problem. So understanding that amount of coercion that exists in capitalism is important. As in, it's going to be a lot harder to turn off that that drive for growth because if, if, if capital doesn't produce a profit at the end and doesn't make the rate of profit, then it really enters a crisis, right? And it really, everything falls apart, right? And then you have a recession and the things are... Right, we right. see so, them all the time. Yeah, exactly. It so goes the, up and down. And the thing is, these are historically relatively recent problems, right? You didn't have gigantic recessions. When they first started to emerge, for example, there was a really big recession in 1857, I think also in the 1830s. And this was a really traumatic event. People didn't really understand what was happening to the economy because it, it just hadn't happened before. So there's there's that. But there's also this idea and linked to the humanization of nature that because capital needs to make a profit, it always needs to be you know, larger the next for the next round of going through the circuit of, of, of commodification, it needs to find more things to commodify. And that's why the natural world is just constantly being absorbed into this process. And that and that links back to your earlier question of the humanization of nature. So what happens with capitalism, it really is the capitalization of nature. So instead of humans consciously thinking like some king is like, oh, I want a canal over here or I want a port or whatever. Instead, you have the market that is telling people like this is a profitable investment, so you should do it, right? And no one 
is really making decisions anymore about you know, how to invest and what how should we should interact with the world. They're they're just given these these signals from the market to act a certain way, and that's why again we can keep on burning fossil fuels, or we can keep on you know eating and making more more meat products and all that, even though it's clearly a really dangerous thing to do. As in, we're going to get a lot more zoonotic disease, or we're going to destroy the planet, and it's incredibly cruel. I mean, despite all that, being aware of all that, we're still forced to act. A certain way. So is this related to what you mean when you talk about a Marxist theory of extinction? Yeah, I mean, this is just an example of the Marxist toolkit is extremely rich and it can be deployed in lots of ways and it can be deployed in ways that uh, Marxists did not intend in Marx himself. You know, Marx himself was not much of an environmentalist, right? And indeed, because of this Hegelian tradition of this humanization of nature, this this belief that at the end of history, we will all kind of live like kings in a way, we will be in this realm of freedom based on the total domination of nature. Because nature is so dominated, then we don't really have to work and we can, you know, everyone can live well. So this is, this is why he's not an environmentalist. Although later in life became a bit more aware of some of these problems, but that's not the dominant strain. Again, if you read something like Jacobin or, you know, any kind of lefty thing, you're going to find this Promethean relationship to nature, like this desire to dominate nature is extremely strong. That's why, you know, most socialists eat meat, you know, and that's also why they cheerlead stuff such as, you know, nuclear power or geoengineering or just incredibly dangerous things because they can't imagine. And they also see capitalism's domination of nature as a liberatory thing, right? Like this is actually good. And we can, as socialists, we can take this over and then use this perhaps to make a bit more wisely or whatever they think. But we still want these tools. And again, that's why the East Germans wanted to have cheap meat and they wanted to have factory farms and all that. But I would just say socialism is the only, I suppose, political force that allows for the capitalization of nature to stop, right? To say, you know, we will not go any further. I mean, the, uh, it's, uh, you need to actually consciously control uh, the economy if you want to have any chance of preventing uh, the, the environmental crisis going forward. Like you need to have planners and say that, you know, we will distribute resources. Everyone gets, I don't know, a certain amount of electricity or, you know, a certain access to transport and you know, a certain you know, amount of food and everyone can have a good life, but we're not going to have profit dictate how we're going to invest things. We will decide how we're going to invest, you know, our, our labor and, and, and energy and so forth. And that creates the possibility of, um, having a, a good relationship with nature because otherwise we're just going to go and we're, we will reach the point of totally capitalizing all and modifying all of nature, which will be ruinous, right? And horrifying. I mean, you can imagine the only creatures alive would be, you know, animals on factory farms and, and egg no wild animals. And it's just the yeah. whole sea is full of, you know, fish farms. It's just terrifying, right? I imagine it all the time. That's what, <laughs> that's what my life is about, uh, trying to trying to think of a way to keep that from happening and understanding that I have no control over it. But which brings us back to, you know, speaking of having control over things, I guess this is like at the core of your argument that there has to, there have to be people in charge who are doing the right thing. That has always been a problem among, among humans, finding people in charge to do the right thing. This we have recently had in this country, you may be aware of some disastrous experiences with democracy. So where do you find your faith in being able to, assuming you want to democratically impose these limitations on people's quote unquote freedom, where do you find your faith that this is possible? I would say that I'm not much of an optimist, but in terms of like, the reason, so I wrote a whole book and that will come out next year. I wrote it with a friend of mine, Drew Pendergrass, and he's a climate modeler. So it was nice because I could make the Marxist arguments and he, you know, he's learning much more about Marxism, you know, every day, but and he really could back it up with real a real scientific basis. And we're even playing around with making our own climate models and things like that. But the point is, we wrote this book. And for me, the point of the book was almost quite personal, where I wanted to understand, like, why are we in this mess? And also to understand what 
would the solution actually look like? Because right, it doesn't. It's not on offer, right? I mean, either you have these, you know, weird Marxists who say, "Well, we'll just dominate everything, and everyone will have a Ferrari and champagne, and who cares about nature?" So I didn't want to live in that world, and I thought that was unrealistic and awful. Or you have, you know, this the environmental movement, which again doesn't really offer that much. It says, "Well, maybe we'll build lots of nuclear reactors, and that will decarbonize." the world, but that's not addressing all these other questions, right? Uh, and then you have, you know, if you want to call them neoliberals, but, you know, right-wing thinkers who say, well, geoengineering is going to save the world. And, and we'll have like uh, scientists, entrepreneurs who will then control the climate and that will save everything. So, I mean, it was like, these are all terrible futures. And I suppose I want to really think what, what it would look like to have a society that is you know, just and ecologically stable. So that's why I wrote the book. In terms of any kind of optimism, Drew is much more optimistic than me. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. But I think the, the point is, if you give people a choice and you say, you know, either we could have epidemics all the time and we'll have geoengineering and, you know, you're not going to have a blue sky anymore and you're going to have all these, you know, weird problems, maybe wars over controlling the climate and then you're going to have mass extinction. Or, you know, maybe you have to give up your SCV and you have to give up some meat and we're going to have caps on, on wealth and all that. But then you'll be able to actually enjoy like the natural world and, and no one's going to starve, you know, as in if you put the choice like that, I think it's going to be more appealing than you would expect, right? Because I think everyone knows that things are bad, right? I don't think anyone, it's not like the 1990s where we're looking ahead to like a glorious future, right? I mean, capitalism has never offered people less in a, in a bleaker future. I mean, it's obviously we have like fascism and all these horrible things. So, I think there is some space to really articulate that, but again, but no one's doing that, right? Like even the Green New Deal, it's extremely vague. You know, AOC goes on TV and says, you know, we're not going to make everyone vegan, haha. You know, I mean, like there's no real vision there. So we wanted to just fill that space again for ourselves and and also see what what it would be like for other people to think about that. And I'll say one more thing is that again, if you want to think about what capitalism is, and capitalism is this unconscious control of our relationship with nature, right? And what socialism is, it has to be this conscious control, but also uh, this ability to see, you know, what what the economy is like amongst ourselves and with nature. So we wanted to really present that and make visible that relationship. And I think once you make these things visible, then you can really start having a, a real debate. Yeah, it, you know, I, I love the idea of having a vision and, and being able to articulate what it should look like. And I think animal advocates find it very hard to do that because we're so far from where we need to be. And I have always said, just put me in charge because I'll do the right thing. But it's still hard to know how we get from here to there. But I love, I don't, I think you are an optimist. I mean, maybe you don't, maybe you don't think this is going to happen, but at least you've got an idea of, of that something could happen that would be good. So, so I really appreciate that. And I don't think that you gave us the name. I was going to ask you about the book later, but as long as you've mentioned it, can you tell people the name of it and when it will be out? And from now on, when you do any interview, can you do that? Sure. <laughs> uh, the book won't be out for a while because I missed some deadlines because writing a book is hard, but it will be out in um, April 2022 with Verso okay. and called uh, Half Earth Socialism. And we're still debating the subtitle, but uh, that's, that's, that's the book. And Half, Half Earth is E.O. Wilson's idea, right? As yeah. Can you tell us about that? Because that's really interesting. So the, the Half Earth is uh, his idea where the major, like the relationship between biodiversity and, and land area is quite strong. So as in like the more deforestation you have, like the, the more biodiversity loss you're going to have. And he actually managed to figure out a, a relationship where it's basically the fourth root of the other. So the idea is if you cut down, let's say half of the forest, you're going to have around 85% uh, of the original inhabitants. So you're going to lose 15%. But if you cut down 85% of the forest, then you're going to have only half of the original diversity. So that's, and we're on the, the latter you know, track 
basically, because only around 10 or 15% of the world is actually protected in parks, and we're busily destroying the rest of the world. And so we have to increase that amount to 50%. And of course, you can make an argument saying, why 50%? Why not 70% or something like that? And I, I think that that you know, should be debated. But we, we liked his vision, as in I think you have to think big in a way, but we didn't like lots of other things about his argument. I mean, he barely talks about meat. He He's better than most where he mentions it a little bit, but he doesn't really stress that the main cause of habitat destruction is the meat industry, like easily, right? Because it takes up so much space. And then he doesn't have a political economic vision as in like you know how would you run this society or could this society exist within capitalism and i would say that it can't right as in capital hates any kind of restraints on it any any barriers to accumulation so i think if you say half the world is you know not for sale then that won't last very long in a capitalist society so that's why you need it to be socialist and then, then we try to uh, think about what are the different ways to have a non-market economy and we kind of go through a history of, uh, of planning. And it's a mix of socialist theory, but also, again, climate modeling, uh, which is you know, Drew's specialty. And we, and we really draw on developments in, in these climate models. And interestingly, a lot of these models are actually drawn from Soviet planning theory in the 1980s. So there is like this connection. And I think there's also, we also want to sh- shed a light on this, these broader connections that existed between the left and, and environmental thought. For example, like in the 18th, or like the late 18th century or in the 19th century, if you were a, a socialist like, or a utopian socialist, as they were called, you know, you were probably a vegetarian. You know, I mean, a lot of them, the leading socialists of that period, I'd say Robert Owen, for instance, or, you know, most of William Morris's friends were vegetarian. You know, the Frankenstein, the monster in Frankenstein is vegetarian. Right. right? And it's actually modeled on this Jacobin, you know, in the French Revolution, who was, you know, extremely a radical left, but he, you know, John Oswald, that's his name, he was also a vegetarian, you know, so he had these like real dense connections between vegetarianism and the left. And that just disappears and it disappears because of the, the rise of Marxism, right? So we want to recover, I suppose, that, that older tradition as well. Yeah, we sure do. I mean, we had brought this up before and I promised we would revisit it. And I also pulled out a quote about this. You said, the left's The left's love of splendor and the indulgences of luxury, be it meat, leather, pets, or animal-tested products, have prevented it from seeing its complicity in the dangerous ruination of nature. Can can you just expand a bit on why the left is so insanely, frustratingly blind regarding animals? And even aside from animals, you know, as individuals, about, about the huge mess we have made of our planet and what needs to happen to fix it. Yeah, I mean, and this also relates back to the book in a way. We're we're very proud of what we've done, but I think at some level, this argument should have been made 30 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, the connections between you know, ecology and socialism have existed for a long time, but they've been ignoring each other. I mean, and it's just very frustrating where, why is it only now that, you know, maybe we might have a bit of a conversation about these links, you know, as like things are so bad and socialists have been without direction for so long and the world is just again in such a complete chaos right now. I mean, the, we are going through an ecocide, you know, right now, let alone the barbarity of, of uh, the meat industry. Like, why, why haven't we had this discussion? And I think it's, it's to me, it's not really entirely clear, <laughs> to be honest. I think it's, at some level, I think these the connections should be obvious. I mean, this book, for example, is not based on my PhD dissertation. I wrote about something else completely different. I mean, this these things just kind of came up during the my reading on, on other subjects. And the quote that you mentioned, uh, I'm drawing a lot on Edward Jenner's work. So everyone knows Edward Jenner being like the, the founder, the creator of the vaccine, more or less. I mean, he actually, other people were doing something similar, but he really is the first one to write about it and really standardize vaccination. And he, and he did this in 1798. And back then, he could see, well, obviously, these diseases are coming from our, our closeness 
to the animal world. We are not supposed to be dominating animals. And because we are, we're getting all this disease. And that was clear to him, again, more than two centuries ago. So it, it, it should have been obvious, I think, to lots of other people. And I think... You know, lots of lefties are happy to say Anthropocene or they're happy to talk about climate change. But as soon as you tell them you probably have to give up meat or you have to give up a big suburban house or you have to give up your SUV or something, then they get really quite defensive. And I think it's, it's, it's also because they have no real vision of what this end of history will look like besides material abundance, right? And I think mm-hmm. it also it, it also hints that they they don't have faith in their own arguments, as in they, they should be able to tell someone, okay, you're going to have to give some stuff up, but we're going to get rid of capitalism and then you'd be able to control your life and, you know, we'll have a decent world. As in, you should be able to say that rather than almost like buy people off as if you were like a capitalist salesman yourself. So I think these problems are are related as in like, because socialists haven't really reformulated what it means to be socialist after the fall of the Soviet Union. And they haven't really thought much about these these other issues. Um, And I suppose there's just a lot of distaste and distrust between these different groups. Again, animal rights groups are utilitarian, uh, environmentalists are Malthusian, and there's no, <laughs> no, they, but they are. <laughs> like There's quite a lot of Malthus still in the environmental movement. And there's no love lost between these groups and, and Marx, right? So I think that's also part of the problem. Yeah, well, now we're getting into areas that are a little above my pay grade, ferreting out the difference between different theories. But but even I, looking around, find it completely obvious that we're in... I mean, people kind of talk about, well, like, the the pandemic's really bad, but just wait until climate. It's not like the pandemics are going to end. They're going to continue, as you point out, and climate's then going to do additional things that are going to be disastrous. So, is all of this disaster... Do you think it's a moment of opportunity? You said you were pessimist, but do you have any hope at all that people will wake up a bit and start thinking about how do we live better on this planet in a in a big way? And your big way, really, uh, in in your book, if I understand it, is is means we have a we free up half of the planet for somebody other than ourselves. Do you think people are capable of thinking that big, given the crises that we're that we're entering and we're just barely entering into? Well, I, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very pessimistic because we've had this incredible shock, you know, and I'm thinking about Zizek, you know, and he was giving some lectures a few years ago and he was, you know, 2018 or something. He's like, there's going to be a big shock to the system soon. And hopefully that will be a moment for us to really emerge and really take advantage of this of that crisis and the left can come back, you know, and that has not happened at all. Right. And I think it it has not happened at all because the left and environmentalists, they can, they really haven't done their homework and their homework really has to be, what do you want? Right. And it can't just be, we want, you know, like maybe some better housing or, you know, we want to not have foreign wars. You know, this is a whole shopping list. And I agree with those things. But the question is, how do those things come together? Because when it comes down to it, you need to be able to convince other people to say, you know, give me the the keys to the governor's mansion or to the White House or whatever and let me rule. Right. And if you don't have an idea of how you want to run society, what society should be like, then no one's going to trust you. Right. And I think that with good reason, because I don't think people really know what they want. And again, so my, my main research, like what I actually studied as a historian, was neoliberalism, right? And I, and the book is really an engagement with, with neoliberalism. And it's at some level, we say we have to understand neoliberalism, but we could also learn a bit from neoliberals. And neoliberals, they were defeated in the 1930s. I mean, you have the Great Depression. Like, if you tell someone that, oh, the market's great and it's, you know, self-organizing and produces the best possible world, you get laughed at. Right. I mean, you have 30% unemployment and nothing works. Right. So they go back to the drawing board and they create a new ideology. Like it's not just Adam Smith. Like it's, a, it's called neoliberalism because it's a new kind of liberalism. And so when there's a crisis that emerges in the 70s, when Bretton Woods starts falling apart and the old economic, like post war economic order doesn't work anymore. 
And Keynesianism doesn't seem to work anymore. Because before, the government would try to manage the booms and busts in, 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 the, in the economy, and that doesn't seem to work. And so you have stagflation, you have uh, unemployment and all that. Then they can come in and say, here are our solutions, and they have a long-term goal of what they want society to be. And because of that, they're really able to do quite well. So instead, you know, environmentalists or the left... You know, they, they've been constant crises and we haven't been able to take advantage of any of those crises, right? So again, with the, the pandemic, it's happened. How many people really are talking about, well, that means we really should stop controlling the animal world. I mean, otherwise we're just going to keep on getting pandemic. Like that is a, it is a, a, a small part of the discourse, although that's like the heart of the problem, right? Instead you get, yeah. I can't even find anybody who thinks we should get rid of Chinese wet markets. <laughs> like like going to the to which obviously the problem is a million times bigger than that and we shouldn't be focusing on that but they're not even focusing on that. Nobody's saying we should get rid of them. Like it's insane. Yeah, yeah, I mean definitely the exotic animal trade is a huge problem. But that's also related as I'm sure you know to the rise of factory farms. Like all these peasants in China, they can't compete with these big farms. So the government says, why don't you go into exotic animals? That's a niche market. You can do well in that. You know, I mean, these things are are related because farmers are competing on right. this market and they uh and they're they're you know losing out to these big uh industrial farms. That's why they're being pushed into it. So I mean you need to talk about both things at once. And again and like there's no, you know, every country has huge problems with how they deal with animals. I mean, again, in pretty much any relationship or any ecological disturbance will cause a zoonotic disease to emerge, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter what it is. For example, like Marburg virus comes from animal testing and actually vaccine making, right? It was from um, the Koch Institute in Marburg where they, I think they were making vaccines for uh, polio. And that's where mm-hmm. they got, that's where they got Marburg virus, you know, or it's like Hendra. It comes from like a deforestation from in Australia linked to uh, having uh, ranches with horses. And then, you, then you have Hendra virus emerging. I mean, like any, anything you're going to do is going to cause, or you think about West Nile and, and so forth. I mean, anything's going to cause a, a disease and we have to just try to get back, right? To give space to nature. And this is not me being, uh, you know, some extremist, right? If you read the public health literature, people are saying conservation has to be part of it. And also not eating meat has to be part of the discussion. Right? You you would suggest that uh, not eating meat be required by law, wouldn't you? You you would, it, in order to achieve this, you feel that, that veganism has to be required. I think this idea of just waiting for everyone to change their minds is you know, a bit unrealistic. I think there has to be some some more force involved. There has to be, we have to really start pushing for mandatory. Well, if, you're, if you weren't controversial enough, by using the term Marxism, occasionally referring to vegan communism, you now want to do exactly what they all say that we want to do, which of course we actually do want to do, and that's ban meat eating. Well, that's, that's the funny thing, right? So I was actually asked to review uh, Naomi Klein's book, and um, her last book about the on, on fire, and the funny thing was in her previous book, this changes everything. She was saying, you know, like the conservatives, they all say that environmentalism is really, you know, a watermelon, like green on the outside, red on the inside, and what they really want to do is to get rid of capitalism. And then she was saying, actually, these conservatives, they're kind of right, as in they kind of get it more <laughs> exactly. than these liberals, right? And that's what we should be doing, right? And that's, and that's why she says, like, this is the moment to really push through these kind of radical transformations because of the crisis. And then she writes this other book and then she says, well, now the conservatives are saying, you know, you have to give up meat or give up your car or something. And then we do not want that. <laughs> right? And I was Nobody like, Nobody ever is, wants that. <laughs> but why is the logic different? Why are, they, yeah. why are the conservatives wrong this time? Right? Yeah. And, it's just, and they're um, not. At exactly. Least, at least when it comes to you and me. <laughs> but I think, I, I mean, at some point, I think the conservatives do, you know, you know, send some blood in the water. They do see the logical endpoint of these arguments, which is if you actually want to do something about the environmental crisis, you will have to, you know, give up, give up meat. And again, if you do want a compassionate left, you have to give up meat, right? And there's a refusal again, and I think it's just this, this lack of faith in their ability to attract 
people to their cause. And it's the same for environmentalists too, right? I mean, they'll say like, okay, we can deal with climate change. You just change your light bulbs and we'll put up some wind turbines. Nothing will really change. I mean, telling people nothing will really change is never going to motivate people, right? It's never oh. going to get like a big crowd and really get some some dedicated activists. I mean, it's it's pathetic. And I it's a, it's a problem for both both groups. But again, I think it has to be part of the discussion in a way that it's okay to say, okay, we're going to get rid of ExxonMobil or something. Why is it not okay to say we're going to get rid of Cargill? I mean, it makes uh, no sense to me. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. And uh, I agree with so much of what you say. I wish we had more time. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I know people have to wait a long time for the book, but remind us again what it's called. And also let people know where they can find out more about your work. Sure. Uh, it's called Half Earth Socialism. It's going to come out uh, with Verso. And it's based on an essay I wrote a couple of years ago in the New Left Review called To Freeze the Thames. And I have a, a whole page with my, my writing, which I'm hoping you'll link to this page. And thanks again for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been a real pleasure for me as well. Thanks, Troy. Thank you. Our Hen House has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now, you can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening. Anxiety's rising. Our first poem today is entitled Social Meat Ear. Get it? Social Meat Ear. This is by uh, Laura Zinger, who writes the Omnivorous Opinions column for Meeting Place. And she is the manager of territory sales and host of the Market Digest podcast at Ermerberry. So she is a marketer. She starts off by talking about how she's a classic millennial. Who cares? And then she wants, she, she wants to tell us about what she sees as she rots her brain with endless scrolling. And you're going to be really happy about this because her feed is probably not designed in the same way as your feed. And she does see some meat advertising from high-end artisanal meat delivery services that even she can't afford and organic produce and meal kits. And of course, a ton of plant-based, which brings me right to my next point. Plant-based is crushing the marketing game when it comes to the millennial generation and younger. It's increasing market share proves it. <laughs> uh, so it's not just my feed that's full of, uh, full of plant-based foods. Apparently, it's hers too. Everywhere I look, she goes on to say, I am flooded with content telling me how much healthier a plant-based diet is, better for the planet, better for me. I see recipes, ads, blogs, and celebrity chefs telling me that if I would just stop eating meat, I can save my health, complexion, and the world. No pressure. Well, yeah, apparently we're doing fine out there. <laughs> this is really exciting. But according to Laura, knowing what I do, I know that this information can often be misleading or even inaccurate. I believe, as you know by now, that a person's diet should be based on their own beliefs, health needs, values, and preferences, not on great marketing, which, you know, kind of begs the question of why she's a marketer, but whatever. You know, she goes on about, about what she sees and what she wants to see. She wants to see celebrity chefs named up a large brand while they lay a steak down on the grill. When you search best meat companies, you find online meat brands, not the big companies. And you search best plant-based companies and, and you find all of these things that you don't want to see, basically. And what she really wants is that, this is a quote, I want to make sure that if people choose a plant-based diet, they do so knowing all of the facts about the alternative. Well, Laura, you and I are on the same page, totally the same page. I want them to know every fact there is to know about the meat industry. So thank you for that. That was great. So um, our second story, and this is from drovers.com, and is a, is a column by Greg Henderson. Colorado's Meat Out Day promotes a big lie. Yes, uh, we, we got to love uh, what's going on in Colorado. And he starts off by saying, it's no secret that Colorado cowboys, 
he apparently apparently no matter how old they get they call themselves cowboys it's just it's kind of weird like is there any other place that 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 happens anyway it's no secret that colorado cowboys don't care much for their governor and judging by governor jared polis's actions it would seem the feeling is mutual and what he just did the governor is uh he poked the eyes of cowboys when he declared March 20th, the first day of spring, as meet-out day. Well, go, Governor Paulus. You know, it's not big, but it, it's something, especially in a, in a state where ranchers have a lot of, uh, a lot of power. So um, rubbish, say ranchers. It felt like a slap in the face. And, uh, you know, and talks about how much money tourism brings in. You wouldn't ban tourism for a day. And agriculture brings in even more. $47 billion to the state's economy. Can you imagine what would happen to Colorado if we stopped eating meat? Well, you know, what would happen to Colorado if we stopped eating meat? They'd probably grow something else. Yeah, I don't know. So the governor's press secretary tried to put a good spin on this by pointing out that there are agricultural, agriculture day, Colorado Farm Bureau day. (laughs) That's a good one. Truck driver appreciation day. But that's not good enough for Greg because those are all days of appreciation, not blatantly calling for residents to take a day off from an industry as meet-out attempts. And here comes the real problem. Further, critics of meet-out day believe the governor's action was influenced by his spouse, first gentleman Marlon Reese, who is vegetarian and an animal rights activist. Boy, they must just hate him. They must just hate him. Doesn't it make you happy? Oh, I just love it. So he concludes by saying that, you know, he goes on, to talk about the real climate implications. He drags out their favorite scientists, their only scientists, the only one who's on their side about how uh, meat production does not cause climate change. Frank Mitloiner from the University of California at Davis concludes by saying the governor's meat out day will have little effect except to further promote a big lie about cows and climate change. Well, you know, it will have little effect. But, you know, if we did it every day, that would not be such a bad idea certainly have an effect on the cows. All right. Finally, uh, there's um, another kind of similar story. This is just a ton. It's not even really a story. It's just um, something I saw on Twitter posted by Vegan Omaha. This is reposting a a tweet by Governor Pete Ricketts, who's apparently not quite on the same page as the governor of Colorado. And he's from Nebraska. And this is what he posted. While meat is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can eat, there are radical anti-agriculture activists that are working to end meat production and our way of life here in Nebraska. I have designated March 20th as Meat on the Menu Day to highlight the importance of meat in a good diet, as well as to provide an opportunity to support our farmers and ranchers. Oh, well, apparently that's, I'm sure they think that's fine. (laughs) Meat on the menu day. Oh, my God. Meat day. Oh, and that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. and Be safe out there. Social distance. Stay home. Wash your hands and listen to podcasts.